0: ocean bites out loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world we hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way Hello, everyone. Welcome to part three of the kelp episode. Now, today we're going to do something a little bit different. I talked to these two scientists individually because they're on the cutting edge of a lot of kelp research using some very interesting techniques. The first scientist we talked to uses really innovative techniques with microbiology and genetics in order to understand what's happening with biodiversity in kelp ecosystems. And the second actually uses artificial intelligence to give us an inside look into what's happening in these kelp forests. I hope you're ready for part three of the kelp episode.
1: So for our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your pronouns? Uh, My name is Jordan Bemmels, and I use he, him pronouns. Great. Thank you, Jordan. So can you tell us what you're currently researching about kelp? I'm studying the genomics of two of British Columbia's canopy-forming kelp species. Uh, Those include giant kelp and bull kelp. Uh, So giant kelp, uh, otherwise known as Macrocystis pyrifera, is a kelp species that's found on British Columbia's outer coast, so on the west coast of Vancouver Island and northern BC. If you want to imagine what this one looks like, it's got sort of the classic kelp look. Uh, If you're thinking about pictures, you might have seen of kelp forests where it's very tall, a lot of branches. And then bull kelp, the other one, is, or also called Neurocystis luteciana, is found uh, throughout BC waters in both the outer coast and more inner areas, such as the Salish Sea. And this one's got more of a long single stalk and then a collection of little fronds at the top, so it kind of looks like an underwater elongated palm tree in some sense. <laughs> and uh, we're sequencing the genomes of more than 600 individuals of these kelp species from across BC and Washington. And our main goal is to generate genetic knowledge and genomic resources um, about these species and their populations to be able to incorporate a genetic perspective into conservation, restoration, and management. Some of this info may also be potentially useful for the up and coming uh, aquaculture industry that's kind of undergoing a lot of research now or interest but I'll just emphasize that's not uh, one of the current goals of of our work. Um, We're more focused on the the conservation.
0: It sounds like there's a story behind how you got interested in this. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you got interested in researching the
1: genomics of kelp? I'm relatively new to this. I only um, joined the current uh, working on this project about a year ago. I came in with a background in conservation genetics and population genetics. For example, I had done my PhD studying um, using genomics to study range shifts in uh, tree species in response to climate change, and two other postdocs where I did research on things like using genetics to predict how plants would genetically adapt to climate change. And studying conservation genomics of kiwi birds from New Zealand. So, I actually did not come with a marine background, um, but I approached this from being really interested in using genetic knowledge to understand sort of the history of different species and populations and then what we can do to help uh, conserve and manage them. I'm super excited to be working with kelp in particular because. There's almost, well, there's very little genetic knowledge about kelp. It hasn't been as well studied as many other of the important species around the world. So everything is really new and exciting. And it's my first time working with a a marine species as well.
0: That is incredible. I mean, I don't know anything about kiwi birds, but I've heard they're cute. Other than that, (laughs) I couldn't tell you. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit more about how genetics and learning about the genome of kelp, how does that help you conserve kelp for the future?
1: Yeah, so there's kind of three main areas that we're looking at for trying to use genetics to conserve kelp. And I can talk for a while about uh, each of these, but um, the first one is to understand the genetic relationships among different kelp populations. Uh, the second one is to assess the genetic health of different populations, and then the third is to understand impa- uh, patterns of environmental adaptation uh, across the, the province. So uh, for the first one I mentioned about understanding genetic relationships, uh, what that means is trying to figure out which populations are most closely related to one another, and uh looking for example, are there any genetically distinct populations, or are they all very similar? Uh, This is useful for conservation of kelp. For example, we may find a population that's really genetically different than the others, and then that would be a high priority for uh, conservation. Uh, It can also help managers uh, with setting guidelines about which populations are similar and they want to sort of manage together as a coherent unit versus um, other areas where the kelp appear to be genetically different. And then they might require a separate management plan, for example. And it can also inform information about uh, translocations or the movement of kelp genetic material from one area to another, which might be a tool that um, currently is not being used so much, but is uh, there's a lot of research going into that. And it could help, for example, if a marine heat wave comes through and knocks out a population or uh, really sets back the population, we might want to, for example, um, supplement it or replace it with uh, other individuals to help it out from somewhere else. And we need to know uh, where we should get those individuals from. For the second uh, way that we're using genetics to help conserve kelp is assessing genetic health. This includes mostly looking at genetic diversity and inbreeding rates. Uh, And these are important parameters to monitor, especially in small populations that might become threatened in the future. Um, So genetic diversity just refers to how much genetic variation there is in a population. And this is important because it's sort of the toolbox that um, a population has available to use to adapt to future um, challenges that might occur. And inbreeding, or it's important because it can lead to inbreeding depression. And so inbreeding is when individuals that are related to one another will interbreed and um, produce offspring. And their offspring might have uh, lower genetic diversity because they have um, inherit similar material, genetic material from both parents, and they can inherit recessive uh, variants that don't show up when the parents have just one of those variants, but then if they get it from both of the parents together, it can lead to disease. So we want to monitor that as well. And then finally, the third thing I mentioned was understanding patterns of environmental adaptation So in in many different wild species, um, populations are best adapted to their local conditions, and they're less well adapted to conditions that occur uh, elsewhere in the species range. And so we want to try to understand if this is happening in kelp and which environmental factors might be driving patterns of adaptation. So is it things like the sea surface temperature, the salinity, uh, nutrient concentrations, and then which genes and genetic variants are involved. And this is important for conserving kelp because or we predict that there's going to be a lot of change in the ocean conditions in the future, especially related to climate change. And uh, we can make predictions about which populations are going to be better or more poorly suited to those future conditions. And This can allow us to identify if there are specific populations that we think are going to be really at risk and not have the right genetic composition to thrive in the future, and then perhaps make management plans um, developed around helping those ones out. This is incredible. I had no
0: idea there was so much behind what's going on with genetic diversity in kelp. So you've talked about how genetic diversity is really important for protecting kelp populations against disease and changing environmental factors. What does this look like in practice? How would you encourage genetic diversity within kelp populations that might be
1: vulnerable? Well, there's actually perhaps two different uh, lines of thinking on that. Um, So if we're thinking about wanting to protect genetic diversity just of what is already existing there within the population. One thing is to make sure that the populations remain large and robust. Uh, And the reason for this is uh, there's a lot of genetics theories and empirical evidence that shows that small populations tend to lose genetic diversity by a process called genetic drift, um, just at random. Um, And so when we keep the populations larger, the effects of this um, tend to be be smaller. So genetic drift refers to um, sort of changes in the uh, frequencies of different genetic variants in a population over time due to random chance or sometimes called the sampling effect. So it's kind of similar if you imagine you had um, a gumball machine full of different pieces of candy of different colors. And then you um, only some of those individuals or pieces of candy are going to pull out um, and pretend that they're going to reproduce and create the next uh, generation. Um, if you just turn the gumball machine a couple times to pick who are you, who's going to like be the parents in this pretend example, uh, you aren't going to get and exactly representative mm-hmm. of exactly the frequency of each different color or type of candy. So it's the same with um, genetic variation. The individuals that reproduce from one generation to the next don't exactly represent the what was there um, in the parent's generation. And so the genetic variation can change. Another uh, potential avenue is ensuring that there are connectivity maintained between different populations. So if you have two populations that have historically been um, in contact with one another, and they can exchange genetic variation between them, and then if something happens like habitat change or like urban or industrial development that cuts that off, then that will prevent them from sharing their genetic uh, variation as well. And it could, over time, lead to a loss of genetic diversity um, and then the second thing I mentioned, sort of a contrasting opinion, is that um, we're also thinking a bit, especially in terms of adaptive genetic variation that I talked about in, with that third point, that would be more of a human-mediated um, conservation action. But I'll emphasize that that's just sort of an idea for right now, and it hasn't been implemented yet and would require a lot of policies and uh, discussions with stakeholders. And uh, it wouldn't be something that like my research is ex- exactly doing, but we're kind of creating the knowledge that could make that possible.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing. I mean, it's super exciting to think about how your research is going to impact future management decisions and help to conserve these vulnerable ecosystems. So now I kind of want to ask you a little bit more about the nitty gritty of your research. Have you personally collected kelp, or do you mostly
1: just work in the lab with kelp species? I have personally collected only one single kelp population, (laughs) which was in Victoria, (laughs) that um, I did with some colleagues to see how it was done. But um, I'm not one of the field biologists on the team, so um, I feel very fortunate that that we do have a lot of skilled field biologists that have gone out and collected these and sent them uh, back to me, or also collaborators that have um, volunteered their time as well.
0: Well, I mean, you've been out in the field, so I think that counts. You're, you're a field biologist. <laughs> <laughs> so since you mostly spend a lot of time in the lab, for our listeners, can you walk us through what a day in the lab might look like for you while you're sequencing the kelp genome?
1: When I'm doing the, the lab work portion of my work, this is sort of what you might think of the stereotypical scientist in a white lab coat holding a pipette. That, that would be what I look like. Sometimes working in a, a fume hood uh, for protection from uh, dangerous chemicals. The kelp is stored in sort of a small little uh, piece of tissue that's um, desiccated, meaning the water has been completely removed. And so it's like a dry kind of like potato chip texture and that will preserve the DNA. First, we need to extract the DNA from that. This involves grinding up the tissue, getting the DNA out, doing a lot of different things to remove impurities so that we get just pure DNA in water is our ideal situation. And then after that, we'll, um, uh, we can use um, Uh, commercially available kits to what's called library preparation. And this means getting the DNA ready to be sequenced. So we uh, cut it up into small little bits so that it's a manageable size. Uh, We attach little tiny barcodes um, to keep track of which sample is which. And then we combine um, all of those together from different individuals Mm -hmm. and ship them off to a sequencing company that will sequence the DNA sequences uh, for us and, and send us back those data.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, all this stuff happening behind the scenes is just, like, mind-blowing to me. And all the work that goes into sequencing the genome sounds like there's a lot going on. <laughs> so I'm also curious, have you, have you found anything other than kelp DNA <laughs> when
1: you've been sequencing the kelp DNA? <laughs> Um I would uh, predict that there's almost undoubtedly some other organisms' DNA in there in small amounts. So many different organisms might grow on the surface of kelp. Um, we try to avoid that if possible. We don't want to use tissue that looks like there's something else on it. But I haven't actually checked that. Um, what we typically get with is kind of sorting things into kelp or... Not kelp.
0: Yeah, I was just curious because you know if there's something like a fungal infection or some type of other viral infection, I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah, those would probably <laughs> definitely be there. Uh, someone might find find that that useful in the future.
0: So we've talked about your lab work that you do. You know, looking like a stereotypical scientist in the lab. What happens after that? You mentioned shipping off your sequences. What happens once you get those sequences back?
1: Yeah. So after we get the sequences back, then that sort of begins the second main um, activity that I do in the lab, which is bioinformatics. And this refers to using computer programs and writing computer code to actually analyze the data. And the reason this is um, important is because we get a huge amount of data when we sequence these kelp individuals. Um, So each individual kelp genome has about 600 million base pairs. Um, so base pairs are like sometimes you might see it represented in, as a DNA molecule as like an A, T, C, or a G if you're familiar with DNA. But there's 600 million different ones in each individual kelp. We sequence each kelp 15 times over to make sure we aren't making mistakes. Um, and so we get billions of data points per individual. Um, And so to analyze that, we typically do our work by remotely logging into a supercomputer that has far more computational power than the typical laptop. Uh, Analyses that might take years to complete on my laptop, um, we can do in just a week or so on the supercomputer. The, The goal here is to, I mentioned before that we cut the DNA into manageable size pieces. So major goal is to put the pieces back together and figure out where they are uh, along each individual's genome. And then once we do that, we can start looking for the things I mentioned previously, like the genetic diversity and similarities and differences between different populations.
0: Whoa. So after just doing some quick math in my head, does that amount to like 90 billion base pairs that you have to go through or even more? (laughs) Like, what?
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah, I haven't quite done the math, but that sounds about right. (laughs) And we we are planning to sequence like six to 700 individuals as well. So it's a massive amount of data. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. I can't even do the math in my head on that one.
1: (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit more about this supercomputer that you have? So basically, like, like I mentioned, uh, like the kelp genome is like 600 million base pairs long. But when we do the sequencing, we cut it into pieces about like between one to 300 base pairs long. So they're very small. So it's kind of like doing a gigantic puzzle where you have like so many tiny little pieces and you have what's called a reference genome. So um, somebody will have figured out what like one good example of the genome looks like. And then you have to sort of map your little puzzle pieces back to assemble um, a new genome for the individual that you just sequenced.
0: It sounds like the computing power is absolutely massive (laughs) on that. But luckily, you have access to it. And so then that's what informs your research, right?
1: Uh, Yes, yeah, mostly. doing all those n- number crunching and analyses is is the end, um, what we get out. There's not a whole lot of uh, tangible things that you can really <laughs> see from it. So it's all um, kind of behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, but still, hey, somebody has to run the computer. So <laughs> I mean, it's pretty incredible to me. What is something that you've found exciting within your research so far?
1: We're still at the very preliminary stages of analyzing our data. So we haven't reached a ton of conclusions yet. But we are starting to see, um, just from the little bit we've gotten of data we have so far, some differences around Vancouver Island. So it looks like the populations really are genetically differentiated. And they're not just um, all identical. We also do see, so far, major differences in genetic diversity among different populations some populations that are more isolated than others. And so far, one pattern that seems to be emerging is that um, small populations that are sort of way up in the deep fjords tend to have Mm -hmm. lower genetic diversity and be more different than other populations. And this sort of makes sense because we think that they would have a lot less connectivity than the populations that are out more on the main part of the coast and have a lot more connections with others.
0: Very cool. I mean, I personally haven't thought about all the different populations that are that we would find here in BC. But when you say that, you know, the ones that are in the fjords, could they be the key to maybe preserving a lot of the genetic diversity that we would like to see in the future?
1: It's also likely that the climates are a bit different um, up in those more like fjord or inlet areas, the water is probably a lot uh, warmer than out in the more exposed areas. Um, so it it could be possible that some of the differentiation does potentially relate to adaptations that might help, help adapt to warming conditions. Um, we don't have any evidence uh, of that yet, but that's definitely something we want to look for. Or alternatively, they might just be very small populations that um, are actually really struggling. And it's possible they're, they're too small and haven't really been able to adapt very well. So we'll try to, um, that's one thing we really want to figure out is whether um, these slightly different populations really are maybe the key to adapting to warmer conditions, or they're really just kind of not doing well and don't show much promise for long-term survival. It's definitely a place to keep
0: an eye on the research because it sounds like pretty exciting information either way. So, now as we kind of are wrapping up, what is one of the main takeaways of your research? We've talked about genetic diversity, you know, changing climate, different populations. What is something you would like listeners to remember about kelp
1: genetics? I think you summarized it fairly well there, but I'll just say that. Not all kelp populations are the same. Understanding how populations are genetically different will be helpful to manage them most effectively for conservation and restoration.
0: Beautifully put. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Jordan. Really enjoyed talking to you and hearing about the kelp genome and learning a little bit more about these incredible ecosystems. Uh, It's been a pleasure, and thank you for having me.
2: Ashley, my name is Talon. My pronouns are he, him.
0: Hi, Talon. Thanks for being with us today. What are you researching currently?
2: My my one liner that I tell people is that I am assessing the biodiversity and abundance of fish and other marine taxa uh, on seaweed farms using artificial intelligence.
0: Yeah, so can, can you unpack that you know, for our listeners? Break it
2: down a little bit more? Sure. <laughs> there, is, there is a lot of interest in people growing seaweed right now for a bunch of reasons in the ocean. Kind of like how you'd grow like a garden on land. Um, but rather than like make a plot in soil, people can strap little baby seaweeds called sporophytes um, to ropes. And you can lower those ropes into the ocean. And then sent kind of like like an oven, like let sit for six months, <laughs> um, and then and then afterwards, boom, you have like a meter or two meters of of uh, kelp in this area or a type, a type of seaweed that you can then harvest, and then you can use that to do a bunch of different things. You can put it into food. You can make like lasagna out of it. Um, you can add it into like spices for your food. Uh, you can also do like these things called like bio supplements. Uh, put it into things like cattle feed or into the soil to make plants on land grow better. So there's a lot of people like doing this work right now, especially in the last like couple decades here in BC. Um, But there's a lot of questions because it's still a relatively like very new industry, right? Um, For example, one of the big questions is that, well, people are asking, well, we have all these, you know, kelp forests, right? Like kelp grows from the bottom up all along the coastline of British Columbia provides essential habitat for fish and other things. People are also like, well, we when we grow kelp on these ropes, does that also provide habitat for marine critters, stuff like that? Do fish want to come here, hang out like they do in kelp forests? But the issue is that nobody's really tested that yet, at least in this part of the world, uh, whether that effect happens with seaweed farms. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do. So essentially, one seaweed farming company called Cascadia Seaweed said, we're going to try and answer this question in essentially the biggest possible data set we can. We're gonna take essentially a bunch of underwater cameras, we're gonna literally put them inside our farms, attach them to these same ropes where seaweed are growing on um, and have them record video, like five minutes of video every hour for a whole year. And we have like 12 cameras doing this, both inside of our farms and then at like areas where there's no farm about like 500 meters away. So you can test, you know, does the presence of the farm, increase the amount of like fish we see um, in that area compared to areas next to it. And so they have started to do this, but then they're like, wow, that's a lot of video. <laughs> no, <laughs> we, <laughs> Nobody can possibly, well, it would take a long, long time for somebody to possibly yeah. go through all those videos and pick out every little critter that you see.
0: Yeah. Approximately how much video, like how many gigs, how many... I don't
2: know, terabytes okay. of data of mm, mm. video do you have? We have. We ha- We started the project um, when it was only like a year data set at a- around 5,000 hours, um, just over. And now it's been expanded to a year and a half. And so I think that's the the tally, don't quote me on this, but I believe it's around 7,000. Um, <laughs> because- <laughs> so it's, it's a lot. And so they're like, well, how are we going to do this? And then somebody was like, well, what if we trained artificial intelligence to help us identify and count all these fish because a computer can do this a lot faster than a person can. So they partnered with a computer engineering lab at the University of Victoria here. But then the next question was like, okay, when they're submitting this application to do this work, and then they're like, all right, we actually, the computer doesn't inherently know what a fish is. So we need somebody, some, some soul to teach AI what a fish is.
0: And who is this soul?
2: That would be me. Wow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and 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 uh, a couple other um, research assistants that have, that have since joined me in this project. So it's it's been a bit of a wild ride, actually. I'm not I'm not going to lie, but of course you've you've heard about this as we've gone through.
0: Yeah, I mean you've presented multiple times. I mean I'm we're friends, so you've told me a couple of times like about how much work this entails, and obviously AI, it's new, it's a hot topic as you said, doesn't know what a fish is. So when you're going into this program, how do you tell the AI, this is a fish, this is not a fish, and then how do you get the program to do that over and over and over?
2: Two two key elements, I think, would be would go into, has gone into how that works. The first is trying to set for yourself guidelines or or definitions of what is a fish really? It gets very theoretical um, because we we obviously know when we have like species definitions. Like this is a photo of a yellowtail rockfish, right? And we know it's yellowtail rockfish because it has these key features, fin placements, stuff like that. the The issue especially in in waters here where we have very turbid water; it's very murky. Um, we still want to tell the AI what a, a shadow of a fish is, even if it's not fully clear. We want to still capture that, so it gets kind of like theoretical, and you need to set. Each, like, definitions for yourself of what each taxonomical group is. So if it's like just a shadow of a fish, we still want that information. So the second aspect is repetition. <laughs> the first part of my masters was, was literally going through these videos, um, which were luckily filtered, um, by our computer engineering student, Declan McIntosh, um, who was able to kind of pick out certain images that he then showed to me that were, that were, uh, flagged by AI or a preliminary filter as being what's called having salient motion, meaning something is moving in these images. We don't know what, but here you go. It could be a fish, could be the seaweed farm going up and down, but it's going to show that to you. So that was essentially flipping through those images and repeating and drawing these things called bounding boxes. So essentially a square around each time something in the image shows up as being an animal. And then we repeat we we let sit for for eight months <laughs>
0: even though you know you have all this this video all this data it's still like you can't just use it like having this ai you know it seems like it would take you less time i think people are like oh ai you know just put it in yeah. input it you'll get a result <laughs> And you're showing us, no, <laughs> there's all this stuff happening like in the background. There's all this like extra work that goes into it that I think people might be like, oh, AI is going to like be the future. It's going to fix us and fix us. fix, <laughs> us. fix humanity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to like solve all these problems for us almost instantaneously. But there's so much, so much more that goes into it. And you are going to bring us the future talent. <laughs>
2: oh, 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 is that where that, qu- that question was going? I didn't realize yep. that. <laughs> no, that's where return. it's going. <laughs> um, Well, it's, it's my honor. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah, it, it's exactly what you said. I think that, you know, we we see chat GPT or whatever <laughs> now coming out and we see that like, wow, yeah, AI, smart as anything, can do whatever. <laughs> but what we don't see is that chat GPT was trained on essentially the breadth of the internet length of data or worth of data, right? Whereas that what we're doing in this project essentially to scale, we're having to provide the internet data. <laughs> That's all that our model is being trained on. So because of that, we are having to provide sufficient information to tell when a herring pops up, what's that herring look like at every single angle. Um, and so to do that as one person, I don't think I truly appreciated going into this. But it is a lot. But that's why this project is happening over such a big time scale because we need um, a sufficient amount of images for each type of animal that we want to eventually train the AI on because we don't have the the internet's worth of data, right?
0: (laughs) And you want to be sure. It's not like once this is done, you don't want it to be like, this is a turtle. Oh, wait. No, this is a fish. So you don't want to have those discrepancies in there. And the more that you train it the fewer those discrepancies will be.
2: Exactly. We want to make sure that we're confident. So we've set a threshold of like we need to have the AI. We essentially can test essentially comparing the AI to a human, um, annotating these same images and seeing, okay, how accurate is it? It's over 90%, 95%. um, And then eventually only for the things that we're very confident that it's really good at, Will we then eventually use it to create a data set that will tell us the biodiversity abundance of these species over the length of the project?
0: Yeah. And then that's the result that you'll provide to your partner. And then hopefully they'll be able to scale that up. Mm. Another question for you, I don't know, at a different angle for AI. What do you think the ethical implications of this will be going forward in the future, whether it's used for biology or just in general?
2: I think that it speaks to well what you said earlier of like AI is going to you know I said it sarcastically fix humanity. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that AI and I think people who are, are in this field will will agree AI perpetuates humanity, right? Which I think is the is the key of all of this. It only is as good as the data set that you're giving it and the biases that go along with that. So whether it's me, for example, um, where I'm not necessarily as good at IDing jellyfish or whatnot, or people, you know, potentially there's implications about what information are you basing this model off of um, on the internet when we're talking about um, human related AI, right? Where it's talking about like social implications. Um, So I think really it's only as good as what you're giving it. It will do exactly what it's told, um, but I think that a lot of the times we're not necessarily aware. Of the biases that are inherent within us, <laughs> until is produced by the AI that essentially we're teaching it. It's like a, like like a child, essentially. <laughs> like that's that's what it felt like for honestly the first like six months of this this project. Like I was I was feeding this AI a bunch of different images of fish and whatnot, and then eventually we got to the stage where it could feed things back to me. But it was like 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 a child where like it can speak. But it can't really. It's not Shakespeare, um, so so it would eventually start <laughs> handing me things that I would see on the screen, being like, "Father, is this is this fish?" And I'd be like, "No, that's not fish." We, I mean, then we move on. So, so that, I guess that's the point. Is like it, we we can teach it. It can be good, but or it can be bad. But it will be human based knowledge still.
0: True words of wisdom. Yeah, and like you said, I mean. I think a lot of times because it's artificial intelligence, you know, quote unquote, artificial, we forget the human aspect of it. We're like, yes, we're providing it with this data set that's completely unbiased. And, you know, we've, you know, looked at it and done whatever with it. And like, you know, the Internet, sure, the Internet's totally unbiased, completely. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) But once you remember that there is the human element, there's a human bias toward it, toward data in general humans just have inherent biases that's what we need to remember moving forward because that's honestly as we're using it as a tool rather hopefully than letting it control us or control all of our decisions we'll keep that in mind moving forward
2: absolutely absolutely i think that we just need to take in the same kind of as a scientist the -hmm. same kind of randomized testing to try and correct for as many biases as we can with AI, the same way we would with other studies, right? Um, Just accounting for that, treating it as though it is a person doing this work because it's, it's trained by people. It perpetuates people.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing the future to us, Alan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I hope that's not what sticks from this conversation. Of like, yeah, Talon, he's bringing the future. He's doing, he's doing it. Um, but no, you are, you're very welcome. And, and again, I need to, I just need to say right now that this is part of a much larger project that involves many, many people um, who have like set this up, done the field work. Um, a gentleman by the name of Colin Bates with Cascadia started this whole this whole project with Cascadia support. Um, and then there's like multiple labs involved in this. So I am I am but a a small piece in a very large <laughs> AI <laughs> pool, if you will.
0: Yeah, but your small piece is what's driving a lot of this forward. So you will mm-hmm. link Cascadia in the show notes and people can check out the other projects that they're doing as well. Totally. So kelpwise. Have you found anything so far looking through the videos that's been interesting in terms of like biodiversity or what that might mean for like kelp farms in the future?
2: So far, I have to say like disclaimer, our results are all preliminary right now. But in terms of like cool things that have popped up, I think it's it's safe for me to say that we've seen we've seen a lot. That's That's quite surprising. For one thing, we've seen a lot of Pacific herring, which are very crucial on, on our coastline. We know they're very important as a traditional food. We know they're very important in marine ecosystems, um, to salmon in particular, uh, important part of the food web. So we've seen a, a lot of herring. Also seen some other uh, forage fish like uh, northern anchovy um, that have popped up as well. Um, we have seen the occasional rare um, more rare individual that's popped up, um, including like we see the occasional like sea lion. There was one, <laughs> there was one time, and I say this, and, and I don't know. It's not relevant for the project, but I love it anyway, so I mentioned it. Our cameras sometimes like turn around and face up um, in the water because they kind of flow with the water. And so one time it turned up, and I was able to identify a seagull. <laughs> that was flying above the camera, and so that <laughs> that to me like made my <laughs> made my days. So when people ask me like what cool things you've seen, I have to mention the seagull. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, it's it's that's one of the great advantages of a project of this scale. Though is we get to see what the coastal ecosystems look like underwater for a full year. Every day, which is unreal to me. So, you get to see, you know, when shiner perch come into like mating season or whatnot, and like other fish um, come and go from this area. We get to capture all that outside of just the fact that it's a seaweed farm or not a seaweed farm. We get to see more like spatial and temporal patterns, as we call it in scientific lingo, right? So, very interesting stuff to me.
0: Yeah. And that's so cool. I mean, honestly, you know, we just see the surface a lot of the times, but the kelp ecosystem is so unique it provides so many ecosystem services and hosts so much biodiversity and seeing that in real time with all your footage must be incredible
2: it absolutely is it's uh it's really interesting to see just how much one little area where as far as the camera sees can change over the course of a year so i i really will say like watch this space because the, the data set that's eventually going to come out of this will hopefully not only be important for seaweed farms, but also just to know what's going on under the water every day for a year and a half, you know, right in the coastline, right? Because these, these are places, these aren't somewhere way out in the ocean. These are right near the shoreline. We have a, um, a site in in Barkley Sound up on the, the west coast of Vancouver Island, and then a bit further up in uh, what's called Clayquat Sound near Tofino.
0: Yeah, and these places we can definitely link to a map or something, but... They are important coastal ecosystems. We can see like interactions, behaviors happening that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And as you said, they are very important sources of food for many locals. Absolutely. I want to know if you've how much kelp you've eaten in your lifetime.
2: I actually am sad to say that I haven't eaten much kelp before, um, other than like sushi. However, I will say this. I attended uh, what's called the fall program at, at the Bamfield Marine Sciences Center. Bamfield's a very small town on the west coast of the island. And this Marine Sciences Center hosts a lot of really cool like ocean expeditions and research. And you can take classes there if you're a part of member universities. Mm-hmm. And so I took class there. And we took a seaweeds course um, hosted by Patrick Martone out of UBC. And at the end of the seaweeds course, the final assignment was a seaweed cook-off. And so I got to partner up. I was there with my best friend, um, Rylan at the time, and we ended up, um, trying out for it and winning this competition, um, of like trying to make the best dish you can out of seaweed. We were given like cut some instructions, but essentially you need to go literally collect seaweed off the shoreline because you can, you can actually eat, um, almost all, I believe, if not all seaweeds. And we try to make a crafted dish. But the two of us, <laughs> we were, we were like <laughs> young. There's kids who didn't really know how to cook properly, let alone with slimy kelp, <laughs> um, which you got to like dry it out and do stuff with it. It does taste great. But what we ended up deciding on was this – we use this plant or this uh, kelp called Macrocystis pyrifera, which is a type of uh, – called giant kelp. Um, and we cut the blades up and we're like, hmm, maybe maybe we just experimented. What if we just put like chocolate sauce in it and like popcorn kernels and make it into little like pods? And we ended up like burning the caramel, um, went through two bags of popcorn somehow. <laughs> um, we finally made this little product of like shaping these kelp blades into little pods. So we called them macropods. And that's what people, we ended up advertising it as like, you know, you can make this while camping off the shoreline. And they liked it, and it tasted good. So we, we won, and we got, a, we got a seaweed cookbook.
0: Wow. So we're sitting here. I'm sitting here with the winner of the Kelp Cook-Off Competition. <laughs>
2: the Banfield 2017 <laughs> yeah, Kelp Cook-Off Competition. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like – I don't know if anybody ever said that title, but I'm glad that yeah. it's been recognized.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, it sounds – I don't want to say it sounds Good because it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> at least, it sounds interesting, and I would try it at least once.
2: Yeah, I mean, picture it. I picture it like kind of like the tofu of like the the plant world in that you can kind of shape it and craft it, and it can absorb the flavors around it. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, another question for you. Mm-hmm. What made you want to do this? I'm assuming you didn't think that you would become the kelp cook-off. Champion, or be someone who's <laughs> training this AI to identify biodiversity, all these species, all these fish in a kelp or seaweed farm. Mm. So, can you take us on a little bit of a journey?
2: <laughs> sure, a, a journey. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I. So, I. I grew up here on the Kuongan territory in in Victoria, um, and I always joke that like I don't think I had much of a a real. Choice. There was not much deliberation about whether or not I'd go into like marine science in some way because I grew up with um, a couple parents who loved the ocean—a very Australian father who would like take us down fishing on the coastline or like exploring tide pools or whatnot. So when it came time to like go into an undergrad degree, I was like, "Absolutely, marine bio—that's mm-hmm. great." What I didn't expect out of all of that was like what I would end up studying, which has essentially been a variety of things. I, I don't have a study animal. I've studied everything uh, in my very short life from like sand to like gooey duck clams which are these massive, super like old-aged clams that like burrow in the water and like nobody knows why. They, they live super, super long. A fairy wakes up studies is another thing what links it all together what i really gets me going gets the old the old talents blood flowing (laughs) um is is i i really um enjoy doing research that i think matters to people um and if i can get the picture of why what i'm doing might be useful it doesn't i can get excited about a lot of stuff so what i remember when i got the message about this this project um I was working at a, a nonprofit in northeast Queensland, Australia, in the Great Barrier Reef region. I was doing um, water quality and other kinds of um, monitoring and environmental work there. And I got a text. I was in like a mall at like 9 a.m., like sweating my butt off. And I was I I love my my time there, but I was like I never really adapted to the heat. And I got a text from from my mentor and and friend here, um, being like are you still looking for master's? Um, Because you you know, I was like looking, I was only wanting to go back to grad school. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, yes, we'll we'll talk about it. And the more I learned about this project, um, the kind of applications it has, this is before like, (laughs) I don't want to say before AI was cool, but this is like before I really understood how big artificial intelligence is going to be in, in the research space, I suppose, or appreciated it. But I knew that this kind of question was really important um, to seaweed farming as it's taking off because it is you know taking off not only in, in British Columbia but but other parts of the world right now. And, and I was like, yes, sign me up um, even though I have very little to no knowledge of of seaweed farming at the time or or what I would exactly be having to do over the course of the project. And I, I do not regret it at all. It's been It's been a very interesting saga. Do you feel like that? Like your like your research is like a saga. You can't necessarily predict.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of us feel that way. Where we, at least those of us who don't come in with a very clear idea of what your project is going to be, mm-hmm. I think it takes different shapes the further you go along.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But but like the the key part is like, do you, do you like those shapes? Like <laughs> what kind of?
0: <laughs> I mean, sometimes I think I like the different shapes quote unquote, shapes that the research takes more than others. Like sometimes I enjoy the different tasks that are associated with each stage of research. But regardless, there's still the end goal of, yes, my research is eventually going to help people. And that sounds like that's kind of what you've found as well. I mean, with the AI, I know it's been it's been a lot. But (laughs) (laughs) at the end, you know that your research is going to end up helping people.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that's part of this is like with my research the good part about it even though it's sometimes a lot of a big learning curve having to adapt to a new study area each time or whatnot potentially i love the idea i've never had to question whether or not my research might be useful in, in really any project that i've done here and that's kind of i guess one of my passions is like to be able to do that i think is really cool there's also a, a childlike joy i think that comes from this kind of unique thrill from doing something at least seemingly novel to you in the world you know i think that i don't know about you but in this world where like every trip we go on has already like been posted on like instagram by somebody else or like um every trek you can like look for online or something like that that you do like when do we get to do things that are truly like novel you know and and i think that to be able to have that and repeat that with lots of cool different people and experts throughout different stages of your working career, that's that's a privilege.
0: Yeah, honestly, I, lo- I love that perspective because I think we do get caught up in the repetition. It's like, this has already been done. Maybe it's just from a slightly different angle. But I think true novelty in today's world is very rare. And it is a really big privilege that as researchers, we do get to explore these spaces that are, are novel. We do get to try out these techniques and everything that are novel while still working toward, you know, a better future for for everyone.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: If you continuously say, do you think seaweed farms will be sustainable in the future? A sustainable food source? I guess in
2: terms of a sustainable food source, I, I can't say the future of seaweed farming because honestly, like my little pocket of seaweed farms comes down to like, do they provide habitat for some living things? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not sure about... The market, um, or anything like that, or or the or the growth of them, I'd be surprised if they, if at the end of this project we found that there wasn't a difference in some ways, because you know when we put things into the water, things use that as habitat. You know, something does a lot of the time. Um, either if it's fish aggregating or or inverts clinging to things in the water, you know, it, it's still used. Yeah, I don't think I can speak to the rest of the industry overall, but I'm excited to see where it goes because it seems like there's a lot of people um, researching, um, I guess, different facets of seaweed farming right now. and That's kind of the really cool thing that I've seen as being part of the industry. The companies here at least seem very focused on getting to the bottom of what exact effects, both good and bad that these um, seaweed farms may be having on the ecosystem. And there's a lot of eyes definitely on those people doing that work. I think that there are there's a lot of investment going into the expansion of this industry right now. But with that investment comes the implication or expectation, um, which I think companies are trying to fulfill, that we test exactly what effects these spaces, seaweed farms are having on our coastal ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So I think that in the next you know, five, 10 years, we're going to see and have a lot of these questions that you and I are talking about right now of like, oh, I wonder what's going ha- to what, what they do. I think those are going to come to light, at least with some evidence, mm-hmm. in our coastline in BC very soon.
0: I, I would also agree with that. I mean, more and more you're seeing projects like yours coming into the spotlight being like, hey, can we make this work for the future? And, you know, it goes back to the whole idea of blue carbon. It's like, hey, is this going to be helpful with you know, the challenges of climate change that we're facing with food scarcity and increasing carbon in the atmosphere. Is this going to be a sustainable way to maybe tackle some of these problems? We'll see.
2: Mm, Absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. Talon, thank you so much for your wisdom. Much appreciated. And we'll definitely keep an eye on this space for sure in the future. It's my pleasure. Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.